Welcome to Season 2 of the Pines and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. This show understands that there is quite a bit of diversity amongst the body of Christ. So we operate according to the motto that certain things are fixed, like the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. What's cracking, beer lovers? What's up? How we doing? We got some interesting beers. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got something from Shiner, which isn't really craft, but they do some craft-like things. We've talked about Shiner on here quite a bit, and we love Shiner. It's Texas brew. Shiner, Texas. Um, mine is the Agua Fresca, and it is Agua, not Aqua. Yeah. Um, it is A-G-U-A. Um, it is beer brewed with watermelon and lime. And with natural flavor added. <laughs> uh, so we'll see how this is. I'm kind of interested. I love Shiner, and they do crazy things like the the prickly pear um, and the, the sea salt and lime thing that they did, which the is real good. The sea salt and lime thing is dope. It is real good. It's a great summer beer. Um, so I'm excited to try it. It's 4.5% ABV. Um, I don't know. Could be fun. If you're looking for something similar to the sea salt and lime, the Taco Tuesday is a very similar one. Um, uh, I also think that the the Michelob Ultra Cactus Lime is similar too. No, nah, I don't think it's similar. I think it's refreshing in similar ways, but I don't think I think it the, has a saltiness to it. It does, but man, it's it's Michelob. It's not good beer. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's decent beer. It's not like as good as the sea salt lime, but it's decent beer. Nah, bro. I mean, each of us entitled to their own opinion, sure. but nah, bro. I'm not paying for it. <laughs> I'm not paying for Michelob anything. If you hand me a Michelob, I will happily drink it, but I ain't paying for it. Uh, yeah, that's how I feel. That's how I feel. Okay. You got the more interesting one, I think. Ugh. Excuse me. It's 10.42. It is 10.42. Um, I did, yeah. I really wanted this one when we saw it in the store. This is by Lakewood Brewing, which is apparently in Garland, Texas. By Shout the out. name of it, by what it is, it would have to be from Texas. Or, you know, New Mexico or California or no, Nevada no, no. or Queso Arizona. and Margs, bro. Queso and Margs, bro. Bro, there are Mexicans. No, I hear, four I hear you. I hear you. Queso and Margs. This is uh, called the Muy Importante, and it's the Margarita Lager. It says, um, our classic Mexican-style lager is enhanced with agave, orange, lime, and sea salt. Es buena. Seems fun. It does. Cheers, Cheers. buddy. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Mine kind of smells like wet dog. (laughs) (laughs) Did you say it? Smells like wet dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does smell good. <laughs> we, 
We might be getting some whiskey if this ain't good. <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, so, side note, if you're a new listener to this podcast, um, it's called Pints and Perspectives because we knew we were going to have alcohol involved in these conversations. It was a 50-50 coin toss between this podcast being called Pints and Perspectives or a Dram of Doctrine. Yeah. Um, and the only reason I didn't go with a Dram of Doctrine is because most people don't call a whiskey pour a dram anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, and you say a dram and people are like, what? I know, even when I go to a bar, I'm like, hey, can I get a dram? Yeah, They're me like, too. what? I'm like, bro, this is classic cocktail language or classic whiskey language. Ooh. Ooh. I don't like this. Like at all. This is terrible. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Shiner, yeah, I love you. Shiner Box <laughs> will always be my go-to beer. Shiner Box the go-to label, my guy. It will but... always be my go-to beer. This might be the first like experimental thing that y'all have done that I hate with everything <laughs> inside of me. <laughs> I'm sorry. My palate, my taste buds, this is not good. <laughs> I'm dead, bro. That's so dead. All right, score it. Rank it. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> what? I would never drink this again. <laughs> Under any circumstance, if this was the only thing in my in, I had in my fridge, and I had zero gas in my car, and I absolutely needed a beer, I would walk however long it took to go get another beer before I would drink this. I'm dead, bro. Oh, got zero. We've never had a score of zero. I'm sorry. I would never <laughs> drink this again in my entire life. That beer is officially dead to Clayton. <laughs> That's why I got a ranking of zero. It doesn't taste like anything. So you gave it a zero? It tastes like absolutely nothing. And then this like faint artificial watermelon flavor that tastes like toothpaste. <laughs> that sounds terrible. It's not good. That sounds mad terrible. While you talk about yours, I'm going to pour whiskey. <laughs> okay. Clayton's going, to the, Clayton's going to the whiskey stand. Um, that's so funny. <laughs> Zero. I'm dead, bro. Okay. Uh, um, mine is good. Um, I, I'm actually shocked. It's really light in color. But it has the malt and flavor profile of a really like classic, darker, heavier-bodied Mexican lager, while also having all the tickling effects of the flavors that are there to do the margarita element. They're just tickling, and they, they develop and are hitting you at different levels of the palate. Um, I think it's really good. We just had to go to the store and buy beer, though, and so I put this in the freezer. It's still really cold. I would like the opportunity to reserve my score, or I would like to reserve the ability to change my score as it as it uh, warms up. 
and I can taste a little bit more of the flavors in it, but yeah, as of now, I'm at like a seven one seven two. It's a good beer. Dope. Love that. Yeah, that's a good beer. I got some Stranahan's Sherry Cast now. <laughs> Man, that Stranahan's is good. It's good stuff. That Sherry Cast, the Sherry Cast is good. So <coughs> let's talk about some salvation. All right. So note, okay, listener, um, I have my undergraduate degree in Christianity. I have my first master's degree in theological studies, and I'm working on a second master's degree in theological studies. Um, there are very few theological conversations I don't love to have. Yeah. Clayton, on the other hand, this is not really the world that he loves in the same way that I love it. And so when Clayton comes and says, when we're sitting down off air, Clayton says, salvation applied. I found this chapter or this section real interesting. I, it's just because like I approached it with like, so like I read the, the heading of the, 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 the section here. And I was like, the hell does that mean? <laughs> and then I started reading. I was like, I see what they're trying to do now, but I never would have thought about this as an actual like theological conversation. Well, it makes sense, yeah, it but needs, yeah. it has to happen, but I never would have thought about it. Does that okay. make sense? So do you wanna do you wanna talk about some of the things that stood out to you? Um I will talk about them as we're going through. I don't want to okay. mess up your storyboard though. Uh, I mean So salvation applied. Salvation applied is asking the question of what does what does salvation look like? How do we talk about salvation? And here's, here's what I would say. You talk about salvation in lots of ways. You always talk about salvation through metaphors. But every bit of language we use are metaphors, mm. right? Every bit of language that we make up is made up by some metaphorical image we have to communicate that truth. When we say light... Whether you think about a light bulb mm. or you think about the sunlight, you have a metaphorical construct that's making up that light for you. In the same way, when we talk about something being hot, mm -hmm. right? You have a metaphorical construct. Either you touched a fire, a stove, the sun outside is hot, you know, whatever. I have a scar on my thumb from when I was three years old just learning that things were hot and what that meant. And that's your medical vocal construct for what's hot. That is deductive reasoning. <laughs> Correct. You can take this even further to say that there are certain metaphorical constructs that we as a society live by. Two examples I will give you. Metaphorical construct, time is money. Mm -hmm. Okay? How, how do we participate in that kind of metaphorical construct? Stop wasting my time? Yep. I can't afford to give you that much time. Mm -hmm. Time is money. Yep. That's a metaphorical construct that we all have agreed to live by. Yeah. Another one is argument is war. Mm -hmm. When we approach an argument, it's always a battle. Who can win? Who can defeat who? Who can slip in the back door with the, you know, the sneak attack? It's always in a construct of war, conflict, or battle. Mm-hmm. 
the reason I bring this up is because there are lots of ways to look at things and look at metaphors. For instance, how much different would the world look if I took your metaphorical construct of argument is war and changed it to argument is dance? Argument is no longer a battle in which we are fighting against each other. Hmm. Argument is now a construct in which I have that says, hey, I make a move and you have a choreographed move that matches me one-to-one and we progress down a road together in this construct. Love that. Isn't that a much different metaphor? Yeah. Does it not incorporate the same truth of it's an argument? Yes. Great. So here's what I need you to realize. In any conversation about salvation applied, you will primarily hear one primary metaphor of salvation. Every church, every person will prioritize one metaphor. Mm -hmm. However, you need all the metaphors. Yeah. If you only have one metaphor for salvation, they used this earlier in the chapter, but if you only have one metaphor for salvation, it's like, it's like in golf. In golf, you're allowed 14 clubs, and each club has a specific job. If you only have one metaphor of salvation, it's like you got to play the entire golf course with a driver. Yep. How hard is it to get out of bunkers with a driver? Damn near impossible. How hard is it to hit a 150-yard shot with a driver? How hard is it to hit a ball up over a tree to land softly on a green with a driver? None of those are possible. Yeah. In the same way, to have a holistic understanding of the ways in which salvation works and is applied, you must have all of the metaphors mm -hmm. and you must have a plethora of voices helping you shape the metaphorical construct yeah capiche capiche so let's go this is what they say about metaphors as we focus on the pictures of salvation in the bible primarily the new testament we discuss discuss different images and metaphors by using the term metaphors we do not mean something unreal Rather, we are merely recognizing that theologians employ imagery drawn from their cultural forms to explain their experience. <clears throat> we will first explore several of these metaphors and then note how different interpretations of these metaphors and the text that undergird them influence the confessional differences of Christianity. Here's their caveat in all of that, because we're fixing to get into one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different metaphors. Here's their caveat for all of these different metaphors is that <clears throat> every metaphor breaks down at some level. Yeah. And so if you only have one, you're limited by the way in which you can maneuver, the way in which you can build the picture, the way in which you can progress down the game plan. Let's continue with our golf metaphor, right? If, if the goal is to complete 18 holes in 72 strokes, every metaphor that I reject, every element of salvation that I reject, it takes a club out of my bag. And so if we've, if we've got 14 different elements to work from and I decide that only 10 are worth keeping, well, what four clubs did I lose? And the real question is, 
how many strokes off of 72 did those four did not having those four clubs in my bag lose me mm. presumably probably a lot yeah there's a reason that you're allowed 14 clubs because mm. that's the that's the minimum amount of clubs you need to be able to have enough golf clubs for every shot that you would need on the golf course mm. in the same way there's a reason that we have all these metaphors i'll give you one last example before we jump into these metaphors <clears throat> and the constructs last example on this is that in the in the early church the first part of the church uh i'm trying to remember what it was called i think it was called the dietetaron i think that's what it was called um Whatever it was called, there was a there was a um, a charge done by some of the early Christians in the patristic period, just outside of the time of the New Testament. They didn't like that there were four gospels and that those four gospels didn't match up, that the stories didn't match up. So they tried to synthesize them. They tried to do one, and it was called the Dietetron, and they took all four gospels and they tried to make a harmony of the four gospels. It was rejected by the church. Why? Because the church knew back then what we've messed up and continue to try to take away is that you need the diversity of voices to get the whole picture of God. Hmm. So here's your diversity of voices. Justification and righteousness, or law and court. We were condemned before the judge but now we are forgiven and declared not guilty. This, can you think of anybody who loves this one in the Bible? It's Paul. Okay. Paul loves this one. The law, the legal, think about a Pharisee. Mm -hmm. Paul loves this metaphor. Reconciliation, relationships. We were estranged from God, but now we are reunited. This is also a very Pauline metaphor. Yeah. Adoption or family. We were without a family, but now we are God's children, heirs with an inheritance, the co-heirs with Christ through the Holy Spirit. Paul has some elements of this, but this is a very Johannine. Johannine. John. Okay. Any, of the, any of the Johann John literature. Gospel of John, any of the three epistles of John. Um, yeah, adoption is very Johannine. Also, Paul has some. Sanctification or holiness or the temple. We were impure due to sin, but now we're being made holy and pure through the Holy Spirit. Resurrection and death. We were dead in our sin, but now we walk in new life and have hope of bodily resurrection through the Holy Spirit. Glorification. We were mortals because we were separated from the presence of the immortal God. Theosis slash deification or creation. The image of God in humanity was corrupted by sin, but now we are transformed into the image of Christ and share in the divine life. Theosis refers to being made a God, metaphorically, or becoming like God. So, Clayton, which of these is your favorite metaphor? I don't know. I mean, there are some that are more... Like I'm drawn to more than others. Okay, which one's your least favorite? Maybe we do it that the way. The justification. Yeah, mine too. Why do you think so? 
Because we live in a world where our legal system is broke. Yeah, I think so. I think it also might be because, at least for me, um, I think for me, that's the one that was used to most exploit me. Exploit I think that also me. is true. Yeah, specifically. Yeah. The way in which I felt manipulated was by <clears throat> through that metaphor most prominently. I, I feel drawn to the adoption thing. Because, I, I mean, you remember hearing this, this metaphor of picture you, this little peasant child on the side of the road, and the king's chariot comes rolling by and scoops you up and takes you up into the palace. As a, you know, 10-year-old, that's a brilliant story. Yeah. And so you feel drawn to that, but it also feels like a fairy tale. Yeah. Um, the resurrection thing feels very like I feel drawn to that also because of the but now we walk a new life thing this idea that I don't know takes me back to deep Baptist roots that also still feel very comforting in this one piece dead to sin raised to walk in newness of life yeah. Right. My baptism, even though the, 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 the person who baptized me, the situation around my baptism caused lots of harm in the future, that is a special moment, and I feel drawn to that. Yeah, I hear that. So <clears throat> one of the reasons we need a diversity in the metaphors that we use is because the way in which these are communicated in Scripture change. Mm-hmm. And the way in which you make these things up as you interpret them and you put them in a larger picture, you try to make them fit into the puzzle, you realize that they're talking about different things in a different order. Mm. So, Clayton, what is salvation? Being made right with God. Okay, and so what does it functionally accomplish? What are you being saved from? You are being saved from death. Okay, so if you're saved from death, then when are you saved? Don't know. I mean, this is a question that I don't know if I have an answer to, and I don't think I will ever have an answer to. Is it one single moment? Is it, is it a process? Is it at the end? Is it in eternity? Well, what if, is, if you're being saved from death, yeah. how confident are you that like you're not going to die? I'm not. You're not. So are you saved right now? Have you, been, have you been effectively saved from death in this moment? Not a physical heart-stopping ah, death. There you go. No, you have not been saved from death in this moment. No. You've been promised mm. that God in hope mm. is going to save you from death through the work and message of Jesus Christ. Yeah. But as you said today, you are not saved. Salvation is an eschatological, a specific eschatological truth. So why is it, why do we, why are you talking about it that way and not also from the perspective of um, salvation from a spiritual death? 
Oh, okay. Because are you saved from that spiritual death right now? Are you saved from the effects of that spiritual death right now? No, fair enough. Okay. No. Once again, you're living according to a promise in which you will be saved at the end because you've pledged your allegiance and faithfulness to Jesus. Hmm. Fair enough. Correct? Okay. Now, what's the primary salvific metaphor you were given? Justification? Yeah. Justification means that there's a point in which you are justified. What our people told us was that that point was the moment of your conversion. And then you do about your sanctification, Mm -hmm. this process of this journey of faith. So your justification is a point in the past. Your sanctification is your present moment as a disciple of Jesus, Christ follower. And then you have your glorification. The final element of your salvation happens at the resurrection, Mm -hmm. your eschatological truth. Mm. That's the construct we were given. Yeah. That's the justification. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but that's the Protestant way of viewing salvation. Mm-hmm. It's not the, that's not the only way to view salvation. Mm-hmm. It's the way our tradition has done it. But another way in which these metaphors speak to, another way to do it would be the Roman Catholic way of doing it, is that justification and sanctification are combined together. Remember, meritorious grace. Right. So you do these things together to the point that in the future, at your resurrection moment, you are glorified. You experience the fullness of salvation. Okay? Those are the way in which these, or two of these metaphors play out functionally. One ends up feeding the other in this metaphor, right? Like, What do you mean? So... um. This whole meritorious grace thing, the uh, the way that you live and sin and rebel against God, then you go and you do your penance and you go through the motions and not go through the motions. That's probably a bad way to say that. You do the things that are required of you, which ends up feeding back into how you live. And they end up feeding each other until you reach a point of glorification or you die. Correct. It's very much so given. If you were going to look for a primary one, it's the sanctification, holiness, Mm -hmm. the temple metaphor. Yeah. That's primarily the Roman Catholic one. They feed off of one another, reaching you to the point of glorification. Correct. Um, There's a third way to view this, which would be the theosis deification metaphor. Um, this metaphor justification sanctification and glorification are not these like marked identifier or marked points on a linear plane that you're supposed to get to they're all things that are constantly happening every day at every moment while you live in hope of the promised salvation mm-hmm. um because we're constantly in this pursuit of divine likeness and we're growing in each of these areas. We're growing in justification. We're growing in sanctification. We're growing in resurrection. We're growing in all these elements of our soteriology at all the times that we pursue divine likeness and we're growing together. Yeah. It's a mold that we're pursuing of sorts. 
excuse me. And so what I would say is like for me, I'll give you my primary example. Um, my primary soteriological metaphor is theosis deification. Um, I think that's the best way to view it. Uh, I think that's the way that the early church viewed it, which I think is the most important. I think really, if you're going to ask me, I think Constantine messes up the church. And that's why I say everything for me is like Nicaea. Nicaea is the part where I go, okay, I take everything from here with a grain of salt because I think Constantine messed it up. Yeah. Um, I don't think that was a good move for the church. I don't think that was right for the church. Um, I think that that set a trajectory for the course of the church and the way in which the church would respond to things that was not good. Um, but deification was the one that pretty much everybody is operating according to until about 400. Yeah. Then you start to see these big shifts. Augustine comes in, becomes a huge proponent of the justification metaphor, sanctification metaphor. Uh, Tertullian is around. He's in North Africa, like early on, and he's kind of a proponent of this. He's kind of like a, a like a, a precursor to Augustine. And if you were going to go into like a reform tradition kind of uh, family tree, but really it's Augustine that begins to kind of shape that. And then the Catholic Church, it's really not until the Middle Ages that they start getting this kind of like combined meritorious um, element here. And then the Protestants, Martin Luther's the one that's no, justified. Yeah. Justified by faith. Mm. Um, and so you see this development of salvation throughout history. And so if you ever hear somebody say, oh, well, you have to believe it this way, justification, sanctification, glorification, whatever. They're going to quote Romans to you and tell you about Martin Luther. And what you can tell them is, hey, Martin Luther's 95 theses were in 1517. There were 1,500 years of the church before Martin Luther. There's more than one way to skin this cat, friend. Yeah. Um, and I think the beauty of it is you need all the metaphors. Because you know what? You know what theosis and deification you know what that metaphor really lacks, which is hard for me as a, a, a Baptist and hard for me as um, who I am and what I believe about the gospel? Theosis lacks conversion. Yeah. That's, and I don't think, think conversion is the only way to experience salvation, but I think it's a way. Yeah. The conversion thing is hard for me. I mean, clearly it happens for some people. It didn't happen for me that way. I can point to my mo moment of conversion. Yeah. I know exactly what moment I was converted. Yeah, I don't think I could. Um, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all thing. No, it's not. Um, so the conversion thing is hard, but yeah, I do think that that is an element. And um, you know and what? Theosis does leave that out. There's also a piece of me that's grateful to the Catholic voice in this. Mm -hmm. Because you know what? I don't really believe in meritorious grace. But I do believe what the Bible says is that faith without works is dead. Yeah. And so I think you need all the metaphors. Like you can't be, you, you can't, you can't be limited to one metaphor. Mm -hmm. In the same way that there's not only one atonement theory. It's not just... Christus Victor. It's not just penal substitution. It's not just whatever. 
We need all of these voices, just like we need all the voices in any theological conversation, because as we always say, every metaphor breaks down at some level. And so you need a different metaphor to pick up the pieces when the first one does. Thanks for listening to the Pints and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.